Well, it's good to be back. <laughs> uh, Sam and I had an adventure, and we'll be telling you about that adventure in probably a couple weeks, once we get all the stuff together. But God was ever-present all the time, and we never felt it in harm's way, in spite of all the rioting and everything that was going on. And I want to continue to pray for our, the missionaries down there, uh, Carlos Montoya, Dr. Rob, and the rest of the folks there, we just pray for them that they'll be safe and uh, that God will bring peace to that country of Honduras. They have a wonderful, wonderful ministry, and, and we're really excited to tell you about it, and it's something that I think we can get behind as a church. And uh, You know, it only took six hours to get there. It's just a quick flight to Houston and then a quick flight to Honduras, and, and uh, it's a beautiful country, wonderful people. Uh, they were just a little upset this time we went, so <laughs> hopefully next time they won't be as upset. But um, anyway, uh, we'll be sharing that in the, in the coming weeks with you. But this morning, uh, we're going to continue in Romans chapter 14, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 14 this morning. Uh, we're, we're talking about a little series, Unity in Diversity, and uh, there's a lot of things that if you look around this, even a small congregation like ours, there's people from different backgrounds, um, different family backgrounds, different uh, uh, heritages, different nationalities, different countries even. And so we all bring things to the table when we come into the local church. And that's really what was going on back in Paul's day here in the church. Um, the church was rather new. And they had all these people being saved and coming into the church from different backgrounds. And so I want to just lay that down for you, and then we'll read verses 1 through uh, 12 here, and we'll continue in our study. Uh, Paul writes in Romans 14, As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. Uh, while the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For we, if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before, he, before this judgment seat of God, for it is written, 
as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give account of himself to God. So when you stop and you think about what's going on here, as I said, the church is made up of people from different backgrounds. But Paul made it very clear in verse 2 here. He said very clearly that, that one person believes or has faith that he may eat while the weak person eats only vegetables. He's, he's making a point here that no matter whether you eat meat or not, it's not talking about being a vegetarian. That's not what he's talking about. Um, he's talking about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And uh, that's what they did back in that day. And so as people got saved, they came from various backgrounds, some from a Jewish background, and they would come into the church, and they would bring all of their, uh, uh, the rituals, the traditions, all that that they got saved out of, it's still there with them. And so they had to kind of grow in their faith and understand that, well, you know, we don't need all this rituals and these ceremonies and, and all this stuff uh, that it, was, it served a purpose. But now that I'm in Christ, I don't have to do this stuff. I'm not under obligation to do all these ritualistic things. And so they had a hard time breaking away from that. And I think that one thing that's, that's kind of clear is that whether you're coming from a Jewish background, whether you're coming, some of these people were from a pagan background, and what they did as pagans, they would uh, sacrifice their animals to their gods, their idols. And as a result of that, what happened was the animals were not just burned up, all right, and they weren't just thrown away. What they would do is these, after these offerings were made, the priests would present these leftover carcasses to the local meat market. Why throw it out, right? Put it on sale, kind of like day-old bread or something like that. And so you had people going to the meat market saying, hey, this looks like a good deal, nice piece of meat here, nice piece of lamb, whatever. And it was discounted. And they knew why it was discounted. It was discounted because it was sacrificed to an idol, And as a result of that, some people were offended by that. They had an issue with that. Uh, Some people would go, oh, I'm not going to buy that meat. That's, you know, that was sacrificed to an idol. But if you were a Christian, and maybe you weren't from a Jewish background or a pagan background, you were just saved out of nothing, you would go to the meat market and you would buy it. And you'd say, hey, why not? It's a good deal. I know that in my Christian faith, idols are nothing. There's just a stone or a piece of wood. So it's kind of an important thing to realize that, you know what, idols aren't a a god. They're just a figment of a god in somebody's imagination. And so they would say, hey, why not eat this? Well, the Jewish person would look at that and go, man, I can't believe they're eating that. Or even the pagan person who used to sacrifice stuff to idols would look at that Christian and go, how could you eat that? You know what they're doing with that? They take that meat to the, the, the pagan god and they, they, they worship that god and then they bring it to the meat market. And it would really bother them as a result of that. So some Christians were okay with that, others were not. But he's, not pointing, he's pointing out here that everybody had faith. And that's what he says in verse 1, as for the one 
who is weak in the faith, it should say, the faith. There's a definite article there. And that's indicating that they were part of the Christian faith. They believed in Christ. They were, they were, they were Christians. Whether they ate meat or whether they ate vegetables was irrelevant. In verse 2, though, he says, that's why he says one person has faith that he may eat anything or believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. So what would happen is these believers would come into the church and they would begin to grow in their faith and they would realize that, you know what, an idol's nothing. You know, it doesn't really make any difference whether I eat this meat or not. How many of us, when we came to faith in Christ, remembered something from our old life you know, for me, it was something like music. I was really into music, had about 500 albums this was before they had CDs and all that stuff. And uh, I remember I was brand new at this Christian college, very conservative school, and you couldn't listen to anything but Christian music. And um, they took me to a, ser- a seminar on secular music, and it was run by a guy named Alman Coney. Good guy. I mean, I'm sure he meant well. I don't agree with his premise today, but at the time it sounded really good. I was a brand new Christian. And so I went to this church and, and he had this big seminar and he got up there and talked about how the evils of rock music and how the beat is, is made in a certain way. And that if you listen to this, you'll go into all kinds of weird stuff. And, and not only that, but if you play the records backwards, here's what they say. And some of you remember that backward masking kind of stuff. You know, I look at that now and I just laugh and go, this is ridiculous. You know, I mean, some of those songs you listen to forward, you know, you didn't have to play it backwards. They didn't honor the Lord forward. What, what, who in the world is going to play it backwards? But it was kind of a little niche and some people said, oh, these guys are Satan worshipers or whatever it was. And it was very, it took advantage of my early Christian naivete. And so I remember the second day of the seminar, um, he offered that, you know what, if you're a Christian, you need to leave all that stuff behind. If you have any secular albums in your home or in your possession, that's tantamount to sin. And so me being a naive Christian went to my dorm room and got all my albums, all 500 albums. Some of them were still in the plastic. They were new. I mean, I don't know what I was thinking, right? I mean, I think back on that and I'm like, what an idiot I was. But took them all to him, laid them on the altar. I don't know what this guy did with them now that I think about it. Maybe he sold them or something. I don't know. You know, we didn't have a bonfire or anything, so I know he didn't burn them up. But I remember thinking, you know, and these weren't, it wasn't like ACDC stuff. I mean, it's like Chicago, Sticks, you know, um, music like that, bread, you know, easy listening music. I wasn't a, a diehard rocker, you know, kind of thing. So, but I, I remember walking away from that experience going, wow, I feel so much better now that this stuff is out of my life. I'm a better Christian as a result of that. Well, that wasn't true. This just simply wasn't true. But that's how I felt because that's how they made me feel. And what happened was in the early church, there was certain Jewish legalists that kind of came in and snuck into the church and said, you know what, if you want to really be a Christian, they were professing Christ, but they were really Jewish legalists, you know, you still need to obey all the rituals and all the traditions and all the laws that you did as a Jew. So it was important for them to Paul to make this delineation in what people believe. And so that's why he starts off here with this eating thing, because it was an issue. Because it happened all the time. 
People were sacrificing meat to idols all the time. And Paul wrote about it actually in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you look over there to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, it was such a big deal. He had to write them a letter about it. One of the chapters basically. And he he talks about it here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8. If you follow along, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence. In other words, an idol is just that. It's not a god. It has no power. That's what's so sad sometimes when you go to foreign countries, whether it's Thailand or India, even Honduras, you see people worshiping idols, images. It's ridiculous. There's not, no power in that, but they believe there is. He says, for although um, it has no real existence in that there is no God but one, for although there may be so-called gods, small g, in heaven and on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, uh, from whom are all things, and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge. So he's saying not everybody gets this, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So if you came out of a pagan background and you used to sacrifice food to idols, and then you became a Christian, it was a real issue for you when you saw somebody eating that meat. You're thinking, how could they do that? Do they even understand what's going on? And they would be upset. And that was going on in the church. And so verse 8, he says, food will not commend us to God. In other words, it doesn't matter what you eat. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. I don't know if I agree with that. I like to eat, but no. I, you know, he's talking in our relationship with God, not physically. All right. Um, verse 9, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. In other words, he's saying to the strong in faith, he's saying, look, we understand as a, as a strong believer in Christ that, you know, whether this meat is sacrificed to an idol or not, it's really irrelevant. It doesn't matter. I can eat it. It's not going to harm me. It's not going to affect my relationship with God. But Paul's saying, don't take that and shove it in somebody's face. And maybe there's a, a weaker brother. They're a Christian, but they're, maybe they're saved out of that background and they haven't grown in their relationship with Christ to the level where they can say the same thing and, and eat that meat with a clear conscience. He's saying, don't shove it in their face and say, oh, what's wrong with you? You weak Christian. Don't you know idols don't exist? That, he's saying, don't do that. He's saying in verse, in verse 9 there, take care that it doesn't become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone, verse 10, sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? You know, we can think of it this way. 
modern day. You know, there are certain things that Paul is talking about in Romans 14. These are not biblical principles or biblical truths that we would go to the mat on. These are, as he says, don't argue over opinions. These are opinionated statements. Okay, today in our church, um, you know, in our modern day church, there are things that uh, people divide over. Um, what, what, what translation of the Bible do you use? There's churches, there's whole denominations that have divided over that issue. You know, and, and some people think that, you know, Paul carried around the, the King James Version. King James Version is a good version. There's nothing wrong with it. It's great. But it's kind of a ridiculous idea that the Apostle Paul carried around a King James Version. It's just not true. Okay, so, you know, and there's certain people that say, well, if you don't use the King James, then I'm not going to fellowship with you. There's, you know, there's something wrong. Or how, I can't believe your church allows women to wear pants. Oh, my goodness. We would never do that in our church. Or you know what? You actually have instruments up here on Sunday morning playing music. How disgraceful is that? And there's whole denominations that are founded on on Sunday morning, everything's a cappella. Oh, that's great. That's fine. If you have beautiful voices, you want to sing a cappella. But don't make it a point of division among the body of Christ. Or sometimes people like to think of, of things like, um, and you're getting kind of closer to the, the realm of, of issues that, that we deal with, um, things like tobacco use. I mean, you know, personally, I hate smoking. I just hate it. I've hated it. I grew up in a family where people smoked and got away from it. I just, I can't stand it. And so when I see someone with a cigarette in their mouth, in my mind, I ain't a Christian. <laughs> no way, that guy's a Christian. He smokes. How childish is that? Now, I'm not saying that smoking's good for you. It's not. But you can't find a verse in the Bible that says, do not smoke a cigarette. You just can't. Now, there's verses that say, hey, you know, the body's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And you know what? If you want to riddle your body with cancer and all kinds of things that cigarettes do, hey, go for it. But it's not a good idea. It's going to harm you. And you should take care of your body. And it's probably not a good testimony to the world. Okay? So I'm not endorsing that. Another one is when people drink alcohol. Okay? There's some people that are very rigid on that. And there's a reason for that. Okay, there are other people that they'll have a glass of wine with dinner, or, or there's some people that even if you cook with wine, oh my goodness, no way. You can't even cook with alcohol because that's, that's, that's sinful. Well, it, it depends on probably how much you're using in your, your cooking. <laughs> I remember my wife had a black rum cake from Trinidad one time. That, man, you see the fumes coming off of that baby. <laughs> but I remember... Coming back from Honolulu one time through points, and I think it was points. I, I didn't pay for it. I know that. But I, had, I was in a first-class thing. And I got up there, and, I'm, you know, the Honolulu airport's open, so you're, you're kind of getting there, and it's hot and humid. And you get on the plane, and the plane's a little hot. And I was just kind of sweaty and sat in my seat. And I'm like, oh, and this lady came around with this little tray. And she's like, oh, would you like something to drink? I'm like, sure. You know, boom, boom, down three of these little orange juice things, little fizz in them. And I'm thinking, oh, these things are pretty good. And um, sat down, and I was talking to my daughter, and I said, well, i got to get going. And I said, oh, I, was, I was drinking this, uh, some kind of orange juice stuff. And she goes, was it bubbly? I'm like, yeah. She goes, you idiot, that's, that's uh, what do they call it, mimosa. 
It's champagne and orange juice. I'm like, yeah, I'm kind of feeling it right now because I don't drink at all. And I had a nice little flight home. Now, was that sinful? You know, you know, I mean, because I felt the effects of alcohol, but I, I didn't understand what was going on. And so, you know, we have to be careful when we label people, okay, with certain things. Now, on the other hand, I'm not saying go out and drink. I'm not saying that at all. You know, I, I don't try to make a practice of that because, for one, I come from an alcoholic family, all right? And, and I know that when I was younger, when I would drink alcohol, I would drink for one purpose, to get drunk before I was a Christian. That's the only reason. I didn't like it. You know, so I figured the quicker I got drunk, the more I could drink because I didn't like the taste of it and I wouldn't realize what I was drinking. It was just kind of a ridiculous thing. And I could act like, like a total idiot and not be accountable for my actions, I thought. Which was wrong. Okay? But what I'm saying is we have to be sensitive to that. You know, we have to be sensitive to that brother who maybe is a former or is an alcoholic or has come out of that kind of background, and maybe that could possibly cause them to stumble. That could, you know, cause real issues in their life. So we have to know our surroundings and and be very careful that we don't just throw our liberty around, like, well, I'm a Christian now, I can do whatever I want. Well, Paul says, no, you can't. All right? And he's saying that everybody has faith. It's not an issue of having faith or not having faith. But he says... Be careful because if, if what you eat causes your brother to fall into sin, Paul says in verse 13, basically, I'll never do that again. I'll never eat that again. You know, uh, it's not a matter of saying, well, they just need to grow up. You know, who cares if this eating meat in front of them offends them? I'm going to invite them over for lunch tomorrow. And I'm going to have the same thing. Tough luck. If they're too weak to deal with it, that's their problem. This is my house. And see, I mean, pride gets involved real quick. And that's what Paul was trying to share with. And so it's not the eating or the drinking that he's talking about here. Um, He's talking about a, a basic principle. You know, you don't want to be offensive to your brother or sister in Christ. And we, we can't just go by, like, the letter of the law because the Bible doesn't speak to a lot of these things. So we have to use our, our common sense. We have to be careful with that. And so back to Romans, he just says there that, you know what, the person who's weak in faith, welcome him. Don't, don't you know, cause him an issue. Don't try to quarrel with him. Don't try to convince him that you're right and he's wrong. All right, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. And you know what? Paul basically says, that's okay. Don't worry about that. They both have faith in Christ. They're both Christians. And second point here, each is accepted by God. He says that in verse 3. He says, let, no, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. For God has what? Welcomed him. He's welcomed both of them. Whether you eat the meat or you don't, it's irrelevant. Because it's not a biblical issue. It's not something that's going to affect your salvation. Now, if you're talking about the deity of Christ, you're talking about the incarnation, you're talking about God being holy, your salvation by grace, not of works, I mean, things like that, those are very biblical things. You can go to a verse and say, well, this is what the Bible says. But as far as the length of your hair, the length of your dress, or what you eat or drink, the Bible says, you know what, just be sensitive to those around you. 
And he says the only difference here is that there's a, there's a difference in their conscience. The weak brother can't eat this meat sacrificed to an idol and sleep at night. It bothers him. You know, and if you think it's sin, then it probably is. So until he grows in his faith and realizes, hey, there's not a lot of weight in, in this issue of this meat being sacrificed to an idol. An idol's really nothing anyway. It doesn't make any difference. It's not going to affect my relationship with God. Until he gets to that point, you don't need to judge him. You don't need to kind of, you know, press your issue on him. And that's why he says that the carnivores here, the guys that eat the meat, are not to reject or look down on those who eat only vegetables. And and the ones who eat only vegetables is not to judge the guy that's eating the meat. So it's a two-way street. And that's what he says in verse 4. He says, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? So many times within the church of Christ, we pass judgment on people. And we do so really in a, in a wrongful way. I'm guilty of that. I think we're all guilty of that at times. But it's not honoring to the Lord because both are accepted by the Lord. It says, to his own master he stands or falls. You know, if we could just kind of stay in our lane, I say, and focus on our relationship with God and not worry about our neighbor, you know, I think that would be, that would go a long way to unity within the body of Christ. But so many times our heads turning this way and I would look at, oh, look at sister, oh, look at brother so-and-so. And we're so concerned with the other person. And, you know, Jesus spoke of that, right? He says, who are you, I mean, to, to go and offer advice to somebody when you've got a hunking log hanging out of your eye, you know? He said, maybe you deal with that first before you go out and pick a little splinter out of your, your neighbor's eye. And that's how we need to approach this. But it was something that they dealt with all the time. Do we have liberty in Christ? Yes, we do. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13 and 15, Paul talks about that. He says, for you were called to freedom, brethren. All right? Freedom from what? Freedom from the demands of the law. That's what he's talking about there. But just because you have freedom from the law, we don't have to keep the law in order to be saved. We don't just discard the law either. The law is God's word. The law is there to help us grow in Christ. It's a guideline. But that freedom, that liberty that we have, we have to protect it. We have to be careful with it. Galatians chapter 2 verse 4 Actually, Paul speaks of, of certain people who were creeping into the church. They, they were sneaking into the church. And they were, he says, they were sneaking into the church to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. So these were Jewish leaders who claimed to be Christians back in Paul's day. And they saw these other Jewish people becoming Christians, and they thought, you know what, we got to sneak in there and see what's going on in this church. And so they began to realize that, wow, these people are not following the traditions of our Judaism. So we need to do something about this. So they snuck in and they began to tell these Christians, these newly, newly born-again Christians who were Jewish, hey, you know what, hey, great, you found Christ, that's good, but you know what, you still need to hold the Old Testament law. You still need to adhere to that. Now, ironically, there are still Christian denominations around today that hold to that very same thought. They believe you need to follow the law. Um, And so they they snuck in there 
to kind of see how much liberty they really had and to kind of squash that and, and make them believe something that wasn't biblical. I was reading this last week of an illustration of Colonel Otto Skorzeny. He was part of Hitler's army. And he was one of his top commandos. And in World War II, he was responsible to train English-speaking German soldiers how to best look like American soldiers. And they did this for one purpose. What they do is they take POWs and he would line them up with other soldiers and they'd study them. They'd study the way they chewed their gum. They'd study the way they smoked their cigarette. They'd study the way they talked, any accent they have. They'd listen to their, their discussions about sports. They'd learn all this stuff about these American soldiers. And then these German soldiers basically snuck in behind the American lines and kind of just blended in with the U.S. forces. And then they began to sow dissent. Man, do you understand, what, what are we fighting for? You know, and the other guys just thought they were another American soldiers, but they weren't. They were spies. And they sowed, sowed all kinds of, just what if you're captured? What if, well, you know, Hitler's going to win? And they were sowing all this dissent. They even told the, the soldiers that, that Eisenhower was, Ike was going to be uh, 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 kidnapped at one point. They told him all this stuff. And, and it was just kind of a, you know, a way to get at the enemy. Well, that's what these people were doing in Paul's day. They were sneaking into the church for the purpose of bringing confusion by telling these new believers, well, that's not really the way you have to do this. And that's really what happened. And so Paul brings up here, hey, you know what? You don't need to follow this. The gospel doesn't talk about this stuff. The gospel doesn't talk about eating and drinking. It's not that, you know, well, you need to believe in Jesus and eat vegetables, and then you'll be a Christian. Or you need to believe in Jesus and, and not play cards, and you'll, you'll be a Christian. It doesn't speak to those kind of things. And so he, he wanted us to understand that, and that's why in, in Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. See, as a Christian, am I allowed to eat whatever I want? Definitely. I can do that. But you know what? If I go out with somebody who's from a Jewish background, I may not order shrimp. I may not offer them shrimp. Why? Because they don't like to eat that stuff. That's just part of their background. So I'm going to be sensitive to that. Sometimes that's hard. You know, it's difficult. But that's what we're called to do. We don't want to turn our freedom into, he says, an opportunity for the flesh. And a lot of times that's what happens in our churches today. Well, I'm, I'm a Christian now. All my sins are forgiven, so I'm just going to go do whatever I want. And Paul says, no, 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 no. You can't use your freedom in Christ for an opportunity to serve your flesh. But he says at the end of this verse, but through love serve one another. Through love serve one another. And that's a very kind of important point here because each one has a faith. Each one is accepted by God. Each one is convinced in his own mind what he needs to do or what he's doing. And it's important to understand that just because that person is convinced of that, it doesn't mean necessarily that we are. And so he says there in verse 5, one person regards one day above another. Now here he, he, he moves from the illustration of meat and he says, you know what? There's some people among us that, that still want to worship on the Sabbath because that was another issue. 
Okay, Jews worshipped on the Sabbath. When they became Christians, they saw these Christians worshipping on Sunday. They thought, wait a minute, what's going on? Do we do both now? How does this work out? Old Testament Jews worshipped on the Sabbath. And by the way, the Sabbath is what day of the week? Saturday. It's not on Sunday. It's on Saturday. And so if you want to keep the Sabbath, you've got to keep Saturday. If you want to be literal to what they were saying. And they would also observe all these other feast days and everything. And see, it, it became a burden for the Christians in, in the local church because they got confused. They said, well, wait a minute. You know, we're worshiping on Sunday. Is that right? Is that wrong? What's going on? And so he says there in verse 5 that you have to be fully convinced in your own mind. What is Paul saying here? He's saying that, you know what, he's describing our conscience. He's describing, you know what, when you do something, <clears throat> is there something tapping you on the shoulder saying, you know what, you're doing the wrong thing? For me, when I was <clears throat> a brand new Christian, I was at that college keeping these records, something was tapping me on the shoulder saying, you know what, don't, don't keep them, you're doing the wrong thing. Now, today I look at that and laugh and go, what a ridiculous, but you know what, I was convinced in my own mind. And nobody could tell me any different. And see, for me... Today, to, to run into somebody who believes that and try to convince them, well, no, that's wrong. You know, there's nothing wrong with that or whatever. That would be just as wrong. And so he says, you have to be convinced in your own mind. And that's why I said, stay in our own lanes. Sometimes our convictions don't have to be the convictions of another brother or sister in Christ. And see, and when we make them try to bend to our convictions, and we're not talking about convictions that are biblical where you can go to a verse. We're talking about all these optional things, all right, opinions, basically. What happens is you turn your Christian liberty into almost a form of legalism, saying, well, you have to conform to my way. And if you don't, well, then, you know, there's something wrong with your Christian faith. Um, We all are about ready to go through the, the holiday season. And I'm sure if we went around the room and we asked, well, what tradition do you do? How do you, what do you do on Sunday mornings? Or what's your Christmas Eve look like? You know, for years, I was always against opening presents on Christmas Eve. So you just don't do it. It's not right. I don't care if it's even after midnight. You have to wait till Christmas morning. Why? Because that's how I was raised. I mean, sometimes we didn't even have a tree up Christmas Eve. And Christmas morning, you'd go down and the tree would be up and my sister all decorated all these gifts. It was amazing. You know, just that's what I remember. It had nothing to do with Christ. I wasn't a Christian. But, you know, we'd go to Mass. But that was just kind of a side thing, get it out of the way and then go open the gifts. But it was so, it was so amazing. And so, you know, the whole idea that you would actually open up a Christmas gift on Christmas Eve, I was just like, I mean, when we first got married, it was a big bone of contention in our family. I mean, just just the little stockings. No, nothing from the stocking, nothing. It's going to be done Christmas morning. Now you laugh and you think that's funny, but I really thought I was on the right side here. It's ridiculous, right? I mean, it's kind of a ridiculous thing. And I've matured since then. And so, you know, I allow them to open one. <laughs> no, no. But it's the whole idea of being convinced in your own mind. In Titus chapter 1, verse 15, Paul says, to the pure, all things are pure, but to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their mind and their conscience is defiled. 
See, sometimes people blow past their conscience. God has given us a conscience for a reason. To kind of whisper to us, hey, you know, you're, you're hedging on the line of sin here. This might not be a good idea. And there's some people, to be honest with you, they have, they have basically blown away their conscience. They don't listen to it anymore. They don't think there's anything wrong. I, I've seen people interviewed in prisons on TV. And they'll say, well, tell us what you did. Well, I went into this household and I wanted some food. And there was people in the household. So I just killed everybody in the house. And then I got to eat the food. Well, didn't you feel bad? No. I got what I wanted. I mean, just cold-hearted, mindless killers. There's people out there like that. Their conscience is just seared, the Bible talks about it. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 2 and 3, he says, Hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth. That word seared means branded. It, it depicts kind of an ownership. They no longer believe what God tells them. They believe the father of lies, and they become liars themselves. You know, that was something that I, when, I, when I became a Christian, I read that verse, I thought, wow, it's talking about the Catholic Church. They forbid marriage, and they abstain eating foods because we couldn't eat meat on Fridays. So I just thought, well, that's, well, it's not talking about that, but you could apply it that way. To think that somehow by not eating meat on a Friday is going to earn you grace with God is kind of a ridiculous thing. Or in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14, he tells us to cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See, whether it's dietary laws, whether it's worship, Sabbath worship rules and regulations, all those are dead works and you can't be saved by any of that. None of that is going to save you. The conscience can be defiled. The conscience can be seared. But it can also be cleansed, the Bible says, for the purpose of serving God. And so Paul says there in verse 5 that each person must be fully convinced in his own mind, in his own conscience. If you're sitting here today and you say, you know what, I just can't, can't eat that meat, you know, if it's sacrificed to an idol. That's okay. It's all right. God's okay with that. You know, but don't go around telling everybody else they can't eat it. Because the Bible says that all things, God has created all things for, for us. And you can't restrict them that way. So you have to stake out your own position and hold them according to your conscience. But please know this, it's, it's possible to serve the Lord either way. And that's kind of what he says here in the text. The other person who, who eats the meat isn't somehow spiritually inferior than the person who doesn't eat the meat. As a matter of fact, in verse 6, look at what he says. This was such a problem. In verse 6, he says, The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, what? Eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. He goes over it three times because they were making judgment calls on people that we should not make because of maybe a, a, a personal opinion that they had on something. And other people were judging them as a result of that. Um, you know, most, 
most conflicts in the church are not between the weak in faith and the strong, I would say. It's usually between two mature believers who both insist that they're right. Right? Oh, no, my way, my way. And see, what is that? You know, I, I have a right to my own opinion. And see, the Bible speaks about that. As we read in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 9 and, and 12. Make sure that your liberty doesn't become a stumbling block to somebody. If you look at 1 Corinthians 9, 1, he continues this whole idea. And what he's talking about is his apostleship. He said, he's talking about the right of him to be an apostle, Paul. And he, he asks three or four questions here in the first verse of 1 Corinthians 9, 1. He says, am I not free? In other words, I can do whatever I want in Christ. You're not going to tell me what to do. He says, am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you, are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And so he goes on, and then he gives a defense for his apostleship. In verses 4 through 7, he says, Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruits? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And in verse 12, he says, If others share the right over you, then we do as well. We do not use this right, but we endure all things so that we will cause no hindrance to the gospel of Christ. See, Paul was willing to give up his right even to be financially supported by churches because of his missionary work if, if people were going to judge him as a result of that. Fine, the Lord will provide somehow. And so we have to go according to our own conscience. And then the next point here is we have to be thankful. Each one is thankful, and that's what he says in verse 6. He says, you know what? We give thanks to God. If you eat, you give thanks to God. If you don't eat, you give thanks to God. And that should be the motivation of anything we do within the church. It's out of hearts of thanksgiving It's not out of kind of pure legalistic, mindless adherence to some book of rules that somebody came up with. But we do it, we serve the Lord, we serve each other, we serve the body of Christ out of a a thankful heart. And the fifth point here is, you know what, this is not your life. He continues here in Romans, and he points out to us, lest we think that somehow God saved us, so that we could live this holly jolly life all for ourselves. He says no. In verse 7, he says, For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. We don't live for ourselves. Some of you are old enough to remember that show, This Is Your Life. Remember that? It's all about the person. That's not, uh, that's not how the Christian life is. It's not like God saves you and then you're God's gift to the church and it's all about you. No, it's really not. Um, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 5, 4 and 6 says, There's one body and there's one spirit, just as you were also called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. 
what, what's Paul saying there? He's saying, you know what? Don't divide the body of Christ. This isn't about you. It's about the corporate body of Christ. We're interconnected. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, he says, For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether you're Jews, whether you're Greeks. Doesn't matter. Whether you're slaves, whether you're free. Doesn't matter. We were all made to be to drink of one spirit. So we have to stop this judgmental attitude on non-essentials of the faith. Or Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12, 13. The church exists for the equipping of the saints for the work of the service uh, to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity, listen to this, of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man and to the measure of the stature, stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. I mean, I think some Christians, when they think of the church, I don't even know if they have this anymore. Remember the little toy? I forget who, Bronco or whatever, Mr. Potato Head. Remember that toy? And you could take the lips and you could put them on the side. I mean, I think sometimes that's how we view the church. We have this, we have this thing and we just want to do it however we want to do it. So if I want to put the leg where the nose should be, well, that's okay. Well, see, the church is not Mr. Potato Head. It doesn't work that way. The Bible says that God arranges the parts according to his purpose, according to his plan. Sometimes he uses certain people in certain ways, and other times he uses other people in other ways. We don't need to go around dictating how people should be used. Should you be used? Yes, you should be serving the local church. But the idea that it's just me and Jesus and nobody else, that's foreign to the New Testament. When you think about it, he talks about his bride Okay, um, the non-churched Christian, you don't find that in the New Testament. You don't find a Christian in the New Testament that's not going to a church. And yet we probably all know myriads of people that are done with the church, call themselves a Christian, and, and watch somebody on TV every Sunday morning. This is my church. It's safer. Well, sure, it's safer. You're all by yourself. Why wouldn't it be safer? You know, you can talk back to the preacher. You can do whatever you want. He's not going to do anything. He's in a little tube on the TV. It's easier than getting together and rubbing elbows with some people that maybe you agree, maybe you don't. Maybe the personality is conflict. Maybe they don't. That, that takes energy. That takes work. But that's what we're called to do. You know, it's similar to marriage. I mean, Paul uses the illustration of marriage, and he says, you know what? It's a lot easier not to be married. And it's true. Because you're by yourself. You do whatever you want, whenever you want. You don't have to worry about anybody else. You don't have to worry about schedule. You don't have to worry about what time you get up, what time you go to sleep. It doesn't matter. You know, you just do whatever you want. Now, the problem is some people get married and they still live that way. That's the problem with a lot of marriages. You can't do that. You've got to say, okay, it's not just about me anymore. You know, I, I have to learn to grow and to, to love this other person now. So if they want to put the cups, you know, the... The certain way in the cupboard, and I want to put it in the, well, somebody's got to yield. You know, or you go into the toilet and you see the toilet paper, does it go over or does it go under? Well, I mean, there's a whole argument on these things, okay? And you, you laugh, but it's true. And so we need to really understand that this is not our lives. We don't live for ourselves as Christians. We, that's foreign to the New Testament. We're called to live for the Lord. We've heard the saying, no man is an island unto himself. And so he says here in verse 8, 14, he says, For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Whether we live or die, we're with the Lord. We're the Lord's. It's irrelevant. 
I mean, he's the one that rescued us from spiritual darkness, Ephesians 1, 4 to 6. He says, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise and glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Romans 6, 6 tells us, you know how we're born? We're born slaves to sin. That's what the Bible says about our condition. 1 Corinthians 7.23, Paul says that we were bought with a price. We were bought by the Lord with a price. We are the Lord's. Don't become slaves of men. Acts 20.28 tells us that we are purchased with his own blood. I mean, if you're not living for the Lord, who are you living for? Yourself? You think that's a good, good wager to make? See, either you're on God's side or you're not. There's no gray area. You can't have one toe in, one toe out. It just doesn't work that way. It's not like you're taking a bath, okay, checking the water. I'm just going to check it here for a little bit. No, either you are saved by the grace of God or you're not. If you're saved by the grace of God, you're on your way to a glorious place in heaven with him forever if you should die today. If you're not, you're on a place of torment, hell forever to pay for the sins that have grieved the heart of God. It's not rocket science. But sometimes we make it harder than what it is. And people say it all the time. Well, you know, I just can't give up control. You really think you're in control? I mean, stop and think about it. What are you in control of? I mean, when you stop and think about it, we're really not in control of anything. We could walk out of here today and get hit by a truck. You're not controlled. You'll eat your dinner tonight. I'm looking forward to the prime rib that's left over there, brother. But, you know, we're not guaranteed anything. And yet we think that somehow we're the master of our own fate. We're not. There's a sovereign God who is Lord of all. This is the next point, verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again. Look at what it says. That he might be the Lord of both the dead and the living. What's Paul saying? It doesn't matter. Christ isn't relegated just to this life. We are because we're human beings. I mean, we can't tell when we're going to die. And so he says, you know what? Christ is the Lord of both the living and the dead. Sad thing today in our, our modern day churches, I call it easy believism. There's this, this, this theology going around that says, you know what, well, you can come to Jesus Christ as your Savior and not your Lord. They say, well, you know, you can, you can thank Jesus for that he saved you, but you don't have to really live for him. You don't have to really do what he tells you to do. He's able to save you, and then if you're really serious, you want to roll up your, 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 your sleeves and become a disciple and do what he says, that's up to you. But salvation is a free gift. He's just going to give it to you. He doesn't require anything from you. Hello? Where, where does it say that in the New Testament? Where does Jesus ever say, yeah, guys, come on. Let's have a happy time. Oh, you know what? You don't worry about following me. Don't worry about dying to yourself. Don't worry about taking up your cross. None of that matters. Because I'm just here for your salvation. Somehow you can get saved without being transformed in our modern day churches. 
And so our churches are full of people who call themselves Christians that have never been transformed by the power of God. Therefore, they are not Christians. They are just as much on their way to hell as the person on the street who has committed multiple murders and has not repented. We have to drive this thinking from our mind, the idea that somehow it's let's make a deal with God. No. Who are we to make a deal with God? It's God that saves us, beloved. And some of us need to get on our knees and we need to ask ourselves, are we truly believers? Are we truly his disciples? Have we really experienced God transforming my life? Am I different today because of Christ? If the answer is no, then you need to stay on your knees and you need to ask God, you need to beg God to grant you the grace to believe in his only son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the price that he paid for our sins on Calvary. 1 John 2, 4 says, The one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Now remember, John is the what? He's the beloved disciple, right? But listen how he's talking. This is how much he loves us. He's willing to call us a liar if we're saying one thing and our life is depicting another. He says the truth is not in him. The Lord said in Matthew 7, A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, and a bad tree produce good fruit. I saw a bumper sticker once that says, don't believe everything you think. (laughs) Why? Because emotions can't be trusted. See, you may be sitting here this morning thinking you're a Christian, but if it's based on just your emotions, it's not based on anything. For me, I want to see the transforming power of God working in my life. I want to see him working on that sin and and, and kind of fleshing everything out in my life so that I can become more like Christ each and every day. Is that a comfortable process to go through? No. But that's what he's doing. And he is both the Lord of the living and the dead because Christ is not limited by life or death or any other power, real or imagined. Neither is he defined or confined by any message that we come up with. I mean, when you stop and think about it, there's not one atom of the universe that doesn't yield completely to the hand of God. He has created all that there is. He sustains everything by the power of his word. If you don't serve Jesus Christ, who or what are you serving? You have to ask yourself that question. He is the one who said, I am the Alpha, the Omega, who was and who is and is to come, the Almighty. Colossians chapter 1 says, it's Jesus who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him In Christ, all things hold together. C.S. Lewis said this, A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. So Paul asked the question, why do you judge in verse 10? Why do you judge your brother? 
the idea is we shouldn't be doing it. Because ultimately every knee shall bow, he says in verse 10, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether they're good or bad. Are we building a foundation of gold and silver, precious stones, or wood, hay, straw? Because there's going to come a day when every man's, will be, every man's work will become evident. For the day will show it. Because it is to be revealed with fire. And the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If your work remains, you will receive a reward. That's what we're shooting for. That's what we long for. That's why we understand that within the church there is unity in diversity. That somehow God has put us all together into this little church. And it grieves the heart of God. When individuals say, well, you know what, I, uh, it's uncomfortable, I'm going to move on. That grieves the heart of God. Because we're a family, we're part of the body of Christ. And we need to be remindful of that when we deal with each other in areas of these concerns. Father, we thank you that you preserve this unity that you give us. And Father, we just ask that you would... Uh, Minister to each heart here this morning. Lord, even this morning, as we know, um, the ought to be moving soon. And Lord, we, we pray for them. We, we pray that you administer your grace to them. And Lord, they will truly be missed because they are truly part of this body. And Father, we ask that you would uh, just speak to people's hearts this morning. Lord, you know what's in people's hearts. You know if there's people here who have yet to put their faith or trust in you who have experienced that transforming power of the work of your spirit. If not, Lord, I pray that they would cry out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. Save me from my sin. That's a prayer that you will answer when it's prayed from a contrite, humble heart. And for us believers, Lord, I just pray that we'll look forward to this holiday season, that we can share Christ with others, that we can say Merry Christmas and explain what it means. Father, that we can uh, really testify of the grace of God in our own lives through the power of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.